In New Orleans, Louisiana, just on the banks of the mighty Mississippi, you'll find Jackson Square. It's an imposing landmark, the all-white facade and majestic turrets of St. Louis Cathedral tower over a beautifully manicured circular garden, the fairy tale like grandeur of it masking the centuries-old site of public executions and military parades. In the center of the square is a statue of President Andrew Jackson on horseback, hero of the Battle of New Orleans and namesake of the square itself. If you could go back in time 200 years and seat yourself outside the church in Jackson Square to watch the goings-on, you would often spy a woman there. She attended Mass at St. Louis Cathedral daily, ministered to the prisoners in the building just behind it, assisted the nuns with their work in the hospitals and orphanages. You would think, what an incredibly pious and noble woman, how devoted she is to her faith and to the people of this city. This woman's name? Marie Laveau. And if you've ever heard of Marie Laveau, you're probably scratching your head right now. Marie Laveau, like the voodoo queen? What is she doing at the Catholic Church? I thought she was like a con artist swindler or a pagan witch or something. But did you know, there's a whole lot more to her story than what you've been told? Let's fix that. I'm Shayla Fontaine, and you're listening to History Fix, where I discuss lesser-known true stories from history you won't be able to stop thinking about. It's February, which means it's Black History Month in the United States. So all month long, I'm coming at you with interesting Black history stories, except for next week, though I'm going to squeeze in one about Valentine's Day, because, I mean... Who even was St. Valentine, right? But otherwise, this month will feature interesting and impressive Black characters and stories from history. And I'm going to be honest, Black history is difficult to accurately report. And that's because most of it was never written down. For much of American history, at least, it was actually illegal for Black people to learn to read and write. And the white men sure as heck weren't recording their stories or even making note of them in official records, not by name anyway. So you can imagine the difficulty in tracking down this sort of unrecorded history. Much of it is word of mouth, stories that have likely been twisted and exaggerated with each retelling. And that is certainly true of the story I'm going to tell you today. Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen of New Orleans, is almost a mythical being today. She herself was illiterate. She could not read or write, so she's shrouded in mystery, and a lot of the stories that are told about her are actually not true. Some of these stories come from admirers hoping to bolster her power and influence. Some come from haters trying to cast her as an evil, devil-worshipping witch. Today, I'm going to try my best to separate fact from fiction So we get a better idea of who Marie Laveau actually was. Or I guess I should say who the Marie Laveaus actually were, because there were actually two different Marie Laveaus that sort of melded into one person, one voodoo queen, the younger inheriting the title from the older and basically assuming her identity as well in the eyes of history to create an image of immortality. We'll unpack that more later. First, let me tell you about my New Orleans trip. 
I went to New Orleans for the weekend a couple weeks ago for my sister's bachelorette. It was my second time going there. Joey and I actually got engaged in New Orleans back in 2017, so it's a special place for me. But honestly, it's just a special place in general. It is unique in all the world. You will not find another place like New Orleans. It is distinctly different from every other city on earth. It's dirty and debaucherous and mostly crumbling into ruins, sinking into the mud of the Mississippi Riverbank. But at the same time, it has this weird, shabby chicness to it. It's unexpectedly fancy and refined. The whole city is beautiful garbage. It's derelict. And yes, that is a Zoolander reference, and the credit goes to my sister, the bride-to-be Audrey, because she nailed it. It is derelict. There's no other way to describe it. So one of the things we did during this bachelorette weekend was a haunted pub crawl. Because, duh. We walked around the French Quarter, stopping at some really cool bars and some local hangout-type hole-in-the-wall bars. There were some ghost stories told, but really it was, it was very history-heavy, which of course I loved. I learned a ton about the history of New Orleans, some of which I'll be sharing with you in this episode. But first, I want to introduce you to our tour guide on this haunted pub crawl. Tanya. My name is Tanya Fazan, and I am a tour guide in New Orleans, Louisiana. Tanya was phenomenal. She's a colorful character, y'all, and she really made it fun. I highly recommend booking a tour with Tanya if you ever visit New Orleans. And of course, I'll let you know how to find her in the description. There will be a link down there. But Tanya spoke pretty extensively about the Black history of New Orleans, and she did a wonderful job trying to rectify some of the misconceptions and uncover some of the stuff that's just gotten lost, as so much of Black history has. Well, that's why I always tell y'all, prepare yourself, because the African history, I'm so long-winded, I run over, you know it, because I had y'all out there over. I run over all the time, because I just need the people to understand, New Orleans is not lumped into the rest of the South. It was a unique place, then and still is to this day. The history of New Orleans is part of what makes the city so incredibly unique, and like Tanya said, so very different from the rest of the American South. First, of course, like most of the Americas, the area that is now New Orleans was inhabited by indigenous people. I just want to recognize that before we go any further. When Europeans arrived in the early 1700s, they noted several villages along the Mississippi River. Historians estimate that tens of thousands of Native Americans lived in Louisiana and had for over 10,000 years. If you aren't familiar with the area, it has special advantages for human civilization. New Orleans is near the mouth of the Mississippi River, 100 miles upstream, to be exact, from where the Mississippi River empties into the Gulf of Mexico. This river starts all the way up in northern Minnesota and flows for over 2,300 miles, cutting across essentially the entire country. So that's a big deal for transportation, the shipping of goods, right? Trade, drinking water, fishing, it's a food source. It's a pretty good spot to set up camp for a lot of reasons. It's also not a great spot to set up camp for other reasons, but we'll come back to that. So there were thriving communities of indigenous Americans in the area for all these reasons. When Europe started exploring and colonizing the Americas, the area caught the attention of the French. Now, we know the Spanish were all over Central and South America, just conquering things left and right. And we know the English were setting up shop on the East Coast of what is now the U.S., the Dutch as well. France is in Canada. They're dabbling in the Caribbean. 
got to tap into that sugar market, and they set their sights on Louisiana as well. It wasn't until 1718 that the city of New Orleans was founded on some high ground near the mouth of the river. Although, I will say, it does not feel like high ground today. It feels like you're in a hole in the ground, and you kind of are, because there has been some serious sinkage going on in the last few hundred years. The area also just gets completely worked by hurricanes pretty regularly. I mean, Hurricane Katrina back in 2005 is probably the most memorable, But that was certainly nothing new for New Orleans. Actually, the first city of New Orleans was completely destroyed by a hurricane in 1722, just a few years after it was founded, and then rebuilt in the grid pattern you'll still find in the French Quarter today. So while it seems like a great spot for a city, there's definitely more than one catch. And I'm sure France was pretty quickly aware of that and maybe not loving this decision as much as they initially thought they would. France actually gave New Orleans to Spain in 1762. And the circumstances surrounding that gift, if you will, are pretty complicated, but I'm going to brief you on it because it's actually really interesting. So this is during the Seven Years' War, mid-1700s. Great Britain and France and Spain are behaving like toddlers snatching each other's toys. For real. It's like very childish. They have their little colonies in the, quote, new world. They, quote, discovered. And they're just really not good at sharing. Great Britain takes Canada and some Caribbean islands from France. And now Spain is feeling a little threatened. They're like, "Uh uh-uh, buddy. You're taking way too much land. You're creeping up on us. Yes, we have most of Central and South America and some islands and stuff. But you know, We'd like to keep that healthy lead in this world domination competition we've all entered. So France and Spain form an alliance against the British. Britain retaliates by taking Havana, which is like Spain's baby. It's it's a massive loss for Spain. It's their main port. And France is like, oh, um, sorry about that, guys. Thanks for picking our side and all. We really appreciate the alliance. You know what? Take New Orleans. You can have it. We feel really bad about the whole Havana thing. For real, take New Orleans. And they ceded New Orleans to Spain in 1762. But there's more to it, of course, because France is a mean girl. And it's never that simple with mean girls. In 1763, the three dueling toddlers signed the Treaty of Paris to end the Seven Years' War. Britain gives Havana back to Spain in exchange for Florida, and France, aka Regina George, gives Britain Louisiana east of the Mississippi River in exchange for some of its Caribbean islands that it had lost. Okay, so New Orleans is now supposedly half French and half British. The problem being, of course, that the whole city of New Orleans actually belonged to Spain and had, unbeknownst to Britain, for a year now. It was not France's to give away. So I think, if you ask me, I don't think France was just being nice to Spain and giving them this city as a consolation for their losses. I think they knew they were ultimately going to lose it to the British in this war, and they didn't want to. But they still wanted their islands back. So they slyly passed New Orleans on to Spain and then conveniently left out that detail during peace negotiations as a final F you to Britain. They'll also get New Orleans back in about 40 years. So really, they just gave it to Spain for safekeeping. 
So New Orleans belongs to Spain now, and they make some much-needed improvements, including replacing the old wooden buildings that keep burning down because they're made of highly flammable cypress wood with brick buildings, many of which still stand in the French Quarter today, albeit rather wonky and slanted as their foundations continue to sink into the riverbank. So far, we've had three groups in New Orleans, three distinct cultures, the indigenous people, the French, and now the Spanish. But we also have enslaved people from Africa, of course. The first ships of enslaved Africans arrived in New Orleans in 1719, just after the city was founded, and it became a major center for the trading of enslaved Africans. But it was a little different here for these enslaved people than it was in the British colonies. The French and the Spanish, especially the Spanish, had much looser conceptions of racial categories. It was much less black and white, literally and figuratively, than the way the British and soon-to-be Americans saw things. From what I've seen, it seems like there's there was a, a lot of free people of color living in New Orleans compared to like the United States. Uh, why is that? How are so many people gaining their freedom in New Orleans? Well, first off, we had the French Code Noir that would come into establishment. That was written in the 1680s in France, um, knowing that that slave labor with John Law and a company of the Indies being what it was. So they would instill that law there. And in that code, it would stipulate that they were able to be given their freedom, earn their freedom, buy their freedom and buy other people's freedom. And also under that, because they were baptized immediately Catholic under the law, they were off on Sundays after Catholic Mass. Now, it came more into fruition under Spanish control because the Spanish also established their own Cold Noir. Um, I don't French were kind of, like I said, limbs very limp on their laws while I was there because we really had no constructed law system in the city. But under Spanish rule, that was his main goal, was getting law and order there. So their written code noir also adopted the French, but added more stipulations, getting people of color the ability to get that freedom more easily. Gotcha. I remember you, I think you told us a story um, on our tour there about, and I can't remember her name, but she sold coffee. Oh, Miss Rose McCaud. I love her. She invented coffee <laughs> and chicory in our city that is renowned today. But she was an enslaved woman who sold coffee and acquired that freedom during the purchase of people buying that coffee from her. And that's kind of where the the chicory coffee that New Orleans is so known for came from. That's correct. That and the, what the indigenous had taught them about things that were grown native there. Tanya was sure to point out the indigenous influence there, which... Thank you for that. Because this knowledge of chicory root and its uses came from indigenous groups in the area. And actually, enslaved Africans and indigenous people in the New Orleans area had kind of a special bond. They were both oppressed by the European settlers, and they helped each other in many ways. And if you've ever seen Mardi Gras festivities in New Orleans then you've probably seen the Black Mardi Gras Indians. Basically, Black people create these incredible, elaborate, and super colorful Native American-inspired costumes. They're stunning. And they dress up like Native Americans for Mardi Gras, and 
it's not cultural appropriation. It's actually, it's a nod to that sort of unofficial alliance between the enslaved Africans and the indigenous groups in New Orleans. They're recognizing that bond, that friendship that their ancestors had with the indigenous people. And it's out of respect that they incorporate indigenous culture, which was otherwise completely destroyed and basically run out of the area. Now, I will say this. Plantations outside of New Orleans were ran much differently. Um, People of color in the city of New Orleans had no idea what was going on in plantation life for those um, enslaved that were sold out of the rotunda in the city. Um, But because of the area, that's, I think, what makes New Orleans uniquely different from the beginning to now is the fact that we are just very joy de vivre, you know, living the life and just go with the flow and um, more acceptant. It was a free trade city. So the acquired freedom of the people that were black, um, they had their own neighborhood, the Treme. It was developed as the first free people of color neighborhood in the country because of the acquired freedom of the blacks there. It was much easier in New Orleans for enslaved people to purchase their own freedom. They could become free by defending the colony or earning money through various entrepreneurial endeavors like selling coffee. Even teaching their enslavers' children could earn them their freedom. So there's this growing population of free people of color in New Orleans. And they're not viewed the same as free black people in the United States. This Spanish-ruled culture is very different. In New Orleans, they are legally equivalent to white people and enjoy many of the same privileges, including enslaving people. Yes, free black people in New Orleans enslaved other not free black people. Men, because women back in the day, you know, we had our own wiles and powers, but we just couldn't voice them. But they were able to acquire education. So we had a lot of educated black men in the city of New Orleans who were proprietors and pharmacists and doctors and become attorneys and shopkeepers and, again, plantation owners. And sadly enough, we look at it and through goggles of going, oh, God, they had enslaved too. They bought slaves and they did. However, what we don't look at is the fact that a lot of times the acquired free men of color would purchase their family and also other people to keep them under their household in that city. So many purchased enslaved people with the intention of freeing them or offering protection. Some of them also just became enslavers themselves and became very wealthy. They were cultured and educated and sophisticated. Spanish New Orleans even accepted mixed-race relationships. Not officially, you couldn't get married, but there were many common-law marriages between Black people and white people, and it was fine, it was acceptable. There was a distinction, though, I should add, between light-skinned and dark-skinned Black people, where those with lighter skin were more respected than those with darker skin. There was also a distinction between Creoles, a mixed-race Black person born in New Orleans, and those born in Africa. Creoles were much higher ranking than African-born Black people. Now, this will change, of course, when New Orleans is acquired by the United States in the Louisiana Purchase. It becomes part of the American South. And the American South in the 1800s is not a great place to be if you are Black or even a little bit Black. It's all the same to the Americans. Black people have no rights. They are barely viewed as humans at that time. 
But that 40-ish years that Spain ruled New Orleans created a very interesting and different racial dynamic that allowed for African culture to shine through and leave its mark in ways that it couldn't in most other places. So today, the culture of New Orleans is a blend of Native American, French, Spanish, African, and American, and also Haitian, because after the Haitian Revolution of 1791, many formerly enslaved Black people from there flocked to New Orleans because of how free Black people were treated and able to live and thrive and succeed. So this is the world into which Marie Laveau was born, probably in 1801, although some records say 1794. Marie was a free, mixed-race woman of color, a Creole woman born most likely in the French Quarter. Her mother's name was Marguerite d'Arcontrel, and I probably said that wrong, sorry. She was supposedly part Black and part Native American. Marie's father was a wealthy businessman named Charles Laveau. Most assume, without doing much digging, that her father was a white man. But Tanya thinks differently. Now, they have her father in most of the books, and I'm rolling my eyes, you can't see it. They have her father listed as a prominent businessman turned politician. Now, in all sense and matters, people assume that must mean he's white. But he was not. Her father was a very wealthy planter. And he would also get into politics later on. So it gave her accessibility to the upper crust of the city of New Orleans. Marie was mostly raised by her grandmother, Catherine. She grew up a devout Catholic, attending Mass daily. In 1819, she married a free black man from Haiti named Jacques Perry. There's some question of whether or not Marie and Jacques had any children. Many researchers believe they did not. However, apparently there are baptismal records from St. Louis Cathedral listing two daughters, Marie-Angeli Paris, baptized in 1823, and Felicity Paris, baptized in 1824, both with Marie Laveau and Jacques Paris listed as their parents. However, that's the only record of these girls. They just disappear after that. So I don't know if they died young or what. Felicity was noted as being seven years old at her baptism in 1824. Interestingly enough, Jacques Paris, Marie's husband, also disappeared. There's no official record of his death, but he is listed as deceased on Felicity's baptism record, which means that he was already dead by 1824. There's a rumor that Marie killed her husband. Here's what Tanya thinks about that. Oh, Jacques Paris. Now, Jacques Paris would come over here with the Haitian slave revolt. And he did disappear. And this is also at the same time period Marie was being introduced to voodoo. So, with that being said, I think, like, she called herself the Widow Perry. She insisted the officials came looking for him. She insisted that he passed away. Hence why she became the Widow Perry. We don't know what happened, but a lot of people speculate that she killed him. Well, why would she do that? Like, what reason would she have to do that? Um, I don't see any tangible proof or evidence or any documentary. Just the fact that people say they went missing, but she would call herself the Widow Perry, giving the inclination that he passed away. Being a revoltive slave from Haiti, the South, after that slave revolt would happen, a lot of the Haitian refugees came or people came here. 
that was whites, slaves, and free people of color now coming into the city of New Orleans, giving other every southern southerner an idea to sleep with one eye open because now New Orleans, of course, New Orleans became higher black population than white, you know, so it could have been an aspect that he disappeared, I'm air quoting, because somebody from Haiti was looking for him. Because at that time, they could have been looking for runaway slaves. So any aspect of that, I only speculate because there's no tangible evidence of actually what happened to him. But the very fact that she called herself the Widow Paris for so long gives me an idea that something hanky happened, but I don't think it was anything malicious on Marie's turn. And she will go by the Widow Paris for the rest of her life. But she will find love again with a wealthy white man from a prominent New Orleans family named Louis-Christophe Dumenil de Glapion. They could not actually get married because he was white and she was mixed race, but they were in a common law marriage for 30 years and had a lot of kids. There's some question as to how many kids they actually had. Some rumors say up to 15 kids, but it was probably more like seven. Several of them died in infancy, and it seems like only a few lived to adulthood. So how does a good Catholic woman who attended mass every day become the voodoo queen of New Orleans? She was a very endeared member of the Catholic Church. Pierre Antoine, the first Catholic priest of the city of New Orleans, absolutely loved her. They had a very close relationship because of Marie's very, very um, rooted community service. Um, she used that and worked with other Ursula nuns in the city at the convents, at the orphanages. Uh, she would go out. Um Voodoo would come in with her because it was there before, you know, um, that's their culture. That's what it was. But with that being said, seeing that her grandmother was a root worker and using herbal herbal remedies to cure the people of New Orleans during time periods of cholera and malaria, yellow fever was one of the biggest epidemics in the city of New Orleans and using the root work herbal remedies was helping so why not use that even though it was against the catholic and pierre antoine dissuaded her not to do it when they talk about the word you hear the word mambo and it's very loosely terminology now but back in the day that is an african term as well and mambo meant priestess and it just wasn't thrown around very frequently but i think her grandmother would have been known as a mambo so genetically, because of the African roots of a grandmother coming directly from that region, it would be considered that she was lineage to that title of priestess of voodoo. And so because I think Marie believed that the root of voodoo was very similar to Catholicism, aside from the root working, she thought it would be okay to go ahead and start learning this and implementing it into the city because it is a religion about the community as a whole. As a devout Catholic woman herself, Marie was trusted enough by the Catholic community that it appears they sort of just turned a blind eye when she began incorporating voodoo practices into her work because she was helping people. She was healing people and doing a lot of good. And at a certain point, the methods she's using to do that, the means 
become trivial. New Orleans voodoo is the only Afro-Catholic religion in North America. It's very unique, just like the city itself, blending traditions and rituals brought over by enslaved people from West Africa. But in New Orleans, where enslaved Africans could more easily gain their freedom and become respected members of society, these traditions and rituals survived and were strengthened by the influx of formerly enslaved Africans that came over from Haiti after the revolution to join the free black communities in New Orleans. But this revolution terrified white people and voodoo began to be associated with it. They did a whole ceremony the night before with uh, a blood, what they called a, a blood oath in Haiti that empowered them, the enslaved Blacks in Haiti, for that revolt that happened over there, where they, you know, forced their freedom. And this reminds me of the oath drinks Dr. Smith mentioned in the rum episode, episode 37. These oath drinks that were taken just before slave revolts in the Caribbean. But blood oaths were a voodoo ritual, and this caused a lot of fear among white people. They feared the religion could incite more rebellions. Therefore, voodoo was twisted into an evil demonic practice in the eyes of society. Anytime that you are initiated into any religion, it's going to sway you to believe that every other religion is practicing dark. Now, I I like to say this sometimes on tour. Sometimes I don't have the time to do so. But I always cover the fact about, um, they talk about human sacrifice in a lot in a voodoo. And I've yet to find any records of anyone doing it. However, what I do know is that there are blood sacrifices using animals. And here in New Orleans, you probably heard about chickens and goats. But here is the deal I like to explain. I want you to imagine that this is the root of Africa. And in an African village, we don't have Walmarts with our red dye injected beef. When they do their ceremony and practices, the way it does is they do their ceremonies of voodoo worshiping their deities, which are like gods and goddesses or saints. Following that, of course, they do an offering. You don't have a Walmart to go get your meat to feed your people. So you're doing ceremony, and then you are taking an animal that you're going to feed the community with, goats and chickens. Of course, you're going to kill said animal so that you're able to feed the community. The blood is placed on an altar as a thank you to the deities for disease-free meat. And then that animal is to be used to feed the community and so i think here because they're still practicing the way they did in africa and yes they do have walmarts but they're trying to keep it as pure as they can but again these animals are not being killed in vain and that is the light side of voodoo but like i like to explain even on tour every religion has darker light it's about the interpretations and the intentions of the users So some people, the dark practitioners, are about empowering themselves. So it just goes to show that they may be doing animal sacrifices for something less likely in feeding community because they're the power of one, and that's what they want. And Marie certainly seems to have used voodoo for good. We revel, Marie Laveau. You know it. You was on my tour. You see how passionate I am about her um, because I believe in community. And she by far proved 
in a time period where most people wouldn't even bat in an eye to a woman of color, much less followed her. And she led them into the righteous path of living as a community. I believe she is a heroine of the city. She's definitely my hero when talking about historical women of the city of New Orleans because she poured herself into the community entirely. Um, risking herself out there fighting yellow fever. She loses a few of her children to that own disease. And she could just continue on in working alongside the nuns in the city and, and taking care of the orphanages and also building altars inside of the prisoners' prison cells right before their execution to give them peace and consult them and give them that freedom to know that God will forgive them. She did that. But unfortunately, she's not always remembered that way. Marie is often portrayed on TV and in movies as more of a swindler. Local author John S. Kendall wrote of Marie in his 1922 book, History of New Orleans, quote, After dark, you might see carriages roll up to Marie's door, and veiled ladies, elegantly attired, descend and hurry in to buy what the old witch had for sale. An errant fraud, no doubt, but money poured into her lap down to the last day of her evil life. End quote. And that is certainly a completely different view of Marie than what Tanya expressed. How can the perception of one person be so opposite? Well, here's the thing. Like a lot of people know that like movies and books and things and, and it carried on that she was a hairdresser. I always say, look, she's an entrepreneur. So let's put that there before I go to this platform. People came to her for healing and that's how she gained most of her following. And it was mixed people of color. It was everybody was following her because she gave us something tangible to believe in, meaning that her remedies worked. So it wouldn't be far-fetched to believe that she was magical somehow because the doctors couldn't fix things and the Catholic Church couldn't fix it. But by golly, this woman is fixing it. So she gained a devout following and people believed in her because she gave us something to believe in. However, she was an entrepreneur and made some money. And here are some of the ways. She would do hair. She was a midwife. But doing hair, we know, that every woman a minute is sitting in a beautician's chair. Stuff starts flying out their mouths. We have no idea why we're spilling all the tea, but we are giving all the tea. And in fact, Marie would be able to collect this tea. So say Charlotte was sitting in her chair and she's weeping in a chair, crying because she knows her husband is having an affair with someone. And Marie Le and she wants Marie Laveau to tap into that, make an appointment with her to go see her so she can find out who this is with knowing very well that Bobby Sue was sitting in that chair last week, laughing and carrying on about how she was blowing the former's husband. So collecting this information was profitable for her. It wasn't magical. She was just getting the tea spilt as people were getting their hair done and would use that. She would also take money to the slaves in the households. If someone booked a meeting with her, she would go to the household, give the slaves some money. They would give her the tea. She would meet with the person and boom, she would spill the tea. I'll call that evil. I call that entrepreneurial. It's genius. You know, making money, especially in a position that she was a mixed woman of color. So mm -hmm. that money allowed her to do more for the community, do more for her tribe. You know, so while it seems scandalous, which it was, it's just someone doing what they had to do to get by. And I can't blame her for that because I would do it too if I could. But one thing you should know is that there was actually more than one Marie Laveau. Yeah, plot twist.
And then she also birthed who they call Marie Laveau too. Her, yes, I was going to ask you about this. Her daughter. <laughs> yeah. And with her daughter, who did not have the gifts or the personality of her mother, she was a little, for lack of a better term, bitchy. And so um, she did not have the gifts, did not call and hone in the way her mother did. She just sought out people who were desperate to get remedies or get spells or get something done. And so she would make money doing that, but she never was at the level of her mother, who, like I said, is a matriarch of the city for me. She was a prime example of what our city was and is today, where Marie, too, lacked a little bit of empathy for anyone. She was more about money grubbing and, you know. So when the first Marie Laveau retired, one of her daughters, also named Marie, took her place as the next voodoo queen. But it was more than just taking on her position in the community. Marie, too, sort of assumed her mother's identity. And because of that, the lives of the two women and what they did have blended together, muddling and confusing history. Some think it was actually Marie, too, who was the hairdresser turned entrepreneur and not the original Marie Laveau. It does seem as though Marie Tu's less empathetic approach has marred her mother's reputation. With Marie Tu being right on her heels and looking exactly like her mother, I believe that they take the two and mesh them together. And I really think people, I want people to know one was very different than the other. Voodoo was falling off of its power when Marie finally retired. She got sick. She was in, you know, she was in her 70s. Um, she retired it out. Her daughter took the wheel um, and just did not have the pull or the draw that her mother did because she didn't have that purity of heart, if that makes sense, that her mom did. She just knew her mom was making money. She knew her mom had the following. And that's really hard shoes to fill. You know, but she continued her mother's legacy, but just put a different spin on it. Another consequence of Marie too assuming her mother's identity was the creation of this image of immortality and mysticism that Marie had. Right, because they really freaked people out because they would think she was mystical Marie Laveau, the queen, um, because they would see her in different places in the city at the same time. And I was like, no, it was her daughter. They all looked alike. So it made it even more mystical for people like, oh, she's a witch. Because we've seen her in three places. Like, no, you saw her daughter over there at the market. Marie was at her house. You know, since, you know, just. Right. And also, also kind of gave her like an immortal, you know, it's like when the, when the original Marie Laveau died and then her daughter's carrying on in her place, it's almost like this immortal, like <laughs> where she. So like kind of like vampirism, if you think about it. It's, it's a legacy passed down. People assume the name. We have one here in the city. So it's just, you know, that's kind of the thing, the immortality of it. But her spirit lives on. You know, it's ours. And it's just, um, I feel a responsibility in the city of New Orleans to represent her in the light that she should be cast in instead of the one that people assume she's in. And now I have to look into New Orleans vampires. Maybe I'll save that for next year's Spooktober. But Tanya mentioned that Voodoo died off some with the retirement of the original Marie Laveau. 
But it certainly isn't gone from the city entirely. It's still very much a part of the vibrant cultural tapestry that is New Orleans. Like I said, Marie Laveau attended mass seven days a week, twice a day. When she becomes Queen Marie Laveau of the Voodoos, they put an S at the end of it, um, she would still go to church seven days a week, twice a day, except for Sunday. So Sunday afternoons was reserved for the practice of voodoo in what's now called Armstrong Park. Back in the day, there was a wall. The family used to climb over that wall to reunite with their family members, have their practice, and then eat their meal. But still, it's still at three o'clock in the afternoons from then in the beginning when they climbed over the walls till now in Congo Square, where, again, I'm envious of the fact that they have that tradition still going. You don't see many, many practitioners out there like you, you know that they're out there. Different tribes, different families carry different tribes in our city. So they try to get together. Um, but three o'clock every Sunday, you can go out there and hear the Congo drums calling you. And I envy as well the fact that the oak tree that is in Congo Square has been there for one year less than us, us colonists because they came one year after us. So they've been touching the same tree of life historically for 304 years that their ancestors have touched before. And I just think it's a beautiful thing and it's electrifying. So there is power in it. I say that because there's not a time that I don't go out there on a Sunday afternoon and my hair on my arms is not standing at ends. The electricity is near. You can feel that their work is calling their ancestors and that is part of their worship. And it's a beautiful thing to see. What strikes me the most about Marie Laveau is the way she so seamlessly blended different cultures, religions, ethnicities, and ideas together. Here we have a Black woman, but she's not just Black. She's Black, she's white, she's Indigenous. She's accepted by the Black community in New Orleans, one with that community. And also, she rubs shoulders with the aristocrats, the wealthy white and Black planters and politicians through her father and husband's connections. But it's not just through the connections of these men, either. She holds her own with these people because she's powerful. She's doing things. People follow her. They respect her, put her up on a pedestal. And yet she's in the prisons, in the orphanages, the hospitals. She's in the trenches treating yellow fever patients. She's in church every single day, twice a day. And then she's turning around, concocting herbal remedies from West Africa, sacrificing chickens and leading ritualistic ceremonies in Congo Square. And yet the church still accepts her still welcomes her with open arms. There's no gallows, no witch trials or accusations of heresy. She blends the two practices, voodoo and Catholicism, in the same way she blended black and white, rich and poor. It's really remarkable, and it's no wonder her daughter had such a hard time filling her shoes. So I just want people to understand when you're speaking about Marie Catherine Laveau, we are talking about a woman who was statuesque. She should be ignited into sainthood because of all of her charity work done to the city, bringing the community together, Black, white, Native American. She, to me, is the epitome of a New Orleans lady. The epitome of a New Orleans lady, indeed. Because that is New Orleans. It's a beautiful blend of contradictions, as elegant and refined as it is dingy and 
derelict. So many cultures blended together to create a place that is truly one of a kind. A place where being one of a kind is good, encouraged even. Where things aren't quite so black and white. It's refreshing, and we have Marie Laveau in part to thank for that. Thank you all so very much for listening to History Fix, and a huge thank you to Tanya for sharing her knowledge. If you'd like to connect with Tanya, you can find her on Facebook, Tanya DeFazan, which I'll link in the description. You can also do one of her tours with Crawl New Orleans if you're ever in New Orleans, which I highly recommend. We did a haunted pub crawl, but she also does a Wicked Women's History Tour, which sounds amazing. And I'll also link the Crawl New Orleans website in the description for you. I hope you found this story interesting and maybe you even learned something new. Be sure to follow my Instagram at History Fix Podcast to see some images that go along with this episode and to stay on top of new episodes as they drop. Those images are also always available through my website, historyfixpodcast.com. I'd also really appreciate it if you would rate and follow this podcast on whatever app you're using to listen and go ahead and tell a friend or two about it. That'll make it much easier to get your next fix. Information used in this episode was sourced from Encyclopedia Britannica, GhostCityTours.com, JSTOR, History.com, National Park Service, the Historic New Orleans Collection, and a Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast episode about Marie Laveau. As always, links to these sources can be found in the show notes.